Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. All right, welcome back to episode number two of One Guy with Mike, Dingers and Dunks, this week with the eight legends of the Negro League Baseball that are in MLB, the show 23. This is going to be episode number two, and this is going to be the, this is the second part of, of the previous four uh, that we talked about earlier this week, uh, when we... Talked about John Donaldson and um, Satchel Page, Jackie Robinson, and Martin Digo. All right. So in this episode, we'll be talking about Hilton Smith, Hank Thompson, Buck O'Neill, and Rube Foster. Uh, and then we will do one more episode. Uh, I don't think I'll be able to get out this weekend, so it'll probably be out on Monday or Tuesday, most likely to end the month of this with uh we're going to give an overview of negro league baseball and uh what happened what happened before integration and what happened after integration so that'll be fun fun and interesting um you know i learned a lot doing this so proceed to learn more as i keep doing the research to provide episodes like this for you guys and i really appreciate everyone taking the time to come back and listen as well so, this week we are starting off with Hilton Smith. Hilton Smith was born February 27th, 1907 in Gidding, Texas. He began playing baseball with the Austin Black Senators in Austin, Texas. And then he would also play at Prairie View A&M in 1928 and 29 as an outfielder in year one and a pitcher in year two. Uh, he made the Deanlets both years as well while he was there. And in 32, Hilton Smith made his major league debut with the Monroe Monarchs, Monarchs in Monroe, Monroe, Louisiana. He appeared uh, in one game, getting the start. Pitching five and two-thirds innings, he gave up six hits, three earned runs, uh, with four runs scored, struck out two. Uh, he played with the Monarchs as they turned into a minor league team for the Kansas City Monarchs. Uh, so no stats are provided for his years 33 from 1933 to 1934. In 1935 and 36, he played semi-pro ball with the Bismarck Churchills in Bismarck, North Dakota. Uh, he would team up with Satchel Page, Ted Doubleday, Radcliffe, Clint Brewer uh, to form a pitching staff that would win the semi-pro championship in Wichita, Kansas that year in 35. After the 35 season, Page, Radcliffe, and Brewer all left to play elsewhere. Hilton became the ace of that lead uh, of that team and led it led the 36 team back to the championship game, where he would go on to uh, where uh, he would go on to pitch in four games, but in game four where he would pitch in game four, sorry, but Bismarck lost. Uh, late in 36, he signed with the Kansas City Monarchs. He would play from 37 to 48 with the Monarchs. He was a six-time All-Star, won the 42 Negro League World Series. 
Hilton Smith also played in Cuba uh, down in the winter. He played against Bob Feller's All-Stars, Roy Campanella's All-Stars, Dizzy Dean's All-Stars as he was barnstorming throughout the years as well. Uh, He pitched in Venezuela and he was offered a contract um, with the Brooklyn Dodgers at age 35 but didn't accept since he felt his time had passed. Even though he um, he just went 7-0 and in league play that year as well. During his playing days in KC and Barnstorming, he played with Satchel Page. As I previously said, Satchel is known to pitch. This is also during Satchel's later, um, Satchel's later years as um, when they would play and was known to pitch. So Satchel pitched three to four innings at first and then Hilton Smith would come in and pitch the rest. Negro League starred Gene Benson stated, you better get your runs early against Page because you ain't getting any against Smith. Smith was a good hitter as well, far better than what Page was, so the switch uh, made perfect sense. Smith, over his 12-year career with Kansas City, he compiled a 70-39 and 39 win-loss ratio, with a, or win-loss record. He had a 2.88 ERA. He would start 97 games, appeared in 157, he had 61 complete games, 7 shutouts, 11 saves. He had 573 Ks. Uh, he had a 5.6 strikeouts per 9 and a 3.11 walk to or strikeout to walk ratio. Smith went on to become an educator, coach, and steelworker, and he was a an assistant scout for the Cubs. In 2001, he was elected to the Hall of Fame by the Veterans Committee. Up until his death in ninety eight in nineteen eighty three, he was an advocate for Negro Leagues to be recognized by the Hall of Fame. What more? What's more impressive with Hilton Smith's career is when you compile all of his stats as a pitcher. He would be a top thirty lowest walks per nine, just behind Chrissy Mathewson. Second place with the lowest hits per nine at six point seven, just behind Nolan Ryan, who has a. 6.6. His whip would be the lowest of all time at a .889. Hilton was 6-1 when he faced off against white all-star teams. It's a pretty impressive uh, streak and unfortunately never got to see him play in the big leagues or um, see what he could actually do when, even though he did show his dominance when he was barnstorming. Next up we have Hank Thompson. Uh, he was born in 1925 at the age and then at the age of 17 Hank was signed by the Kansas City Monarchs. He played the infield and outfield. He batted 315, 373, and 415 with one dinger, 14 RBIs, two in stolen bases, 41 hits, six doubles, and two triples in 40 games that first season. After that first season, Hank would go on to fight in World War II. He'd be a gunner during the Battle of the Bulge and was discharged in '46. That winter, he would barnstorm with Satchel Paige's All-Stars, playing against Bob Feller's All-Stars. And in 1947, Hank would play for the Kansas City Monarchs, but would be signed. Um, but in July of 47, he would go on to sign with the St. Louis Browns, becoming the third African-American to play in the majors, behind Jackie Robinson and Larry Doby. On July 17th, he made his debut, and, he, uh, and then he would go on to play in 27 games. He would have 78 at-bats, um, in 89 plate appearances, uh, he would have 20 hits, one double and one triple. He hit zero dingers, 
Uh, he did drive in five, but he batted two fifty six, uh, and he had a three forty one on base percentage and a two ninety five slugging percentage. At the end of the season, he was let go and re-signed with, for the 48 season to play with the Kansas City Monarchs. He would lead the Negro Leagues in games played at 47 that year. He had 50 runs scored. He would have 11 stolen bases. He had 27 walks. He hit 337, 431, 554. He had five dingers, 29 RBIs, 59 hits, 13 doubles, and five triples that year. After the 48 season, he would sign with the New York Giants while playing in Cuba with Monty Irvin. And the start of the 49 season, <coughs> he would start in the minor leagues uh, team on the Jersey City Giants. He played half the 49 season with Jersey City before uh, finding a stroke. And then hit, where he hit when he started hitting 375, he was called up and he played in 75 games. He had a line of 280, 377, and 444 and when he, after he was called up. He had nine dingers, 34 RBIs. Um, he had 10 doubles and four triples. He had five stolen bases on seven attempts. And then from 49 to through 56, he played in the major leagues, all with the New York Giants. In 1941, he played 14 games. Um, in 1940, or 1951, he did play 14 games with the Minneapolis Millers. Um, who was the Triple A team for the Giants at the time? For his nine-year career with the New York Giants, he played in 906 games. He had 781 hits. He had 482 runs scored, 103 doubles. He had 33 triples, 129 home runs, 477 RBIs, 31 stolen bases, and he had a batting line of 267, 373, and 457. He was on the 51 World Series team that's that lost to the Yankees four to two. And he was on the 54 Yankee, uh, New York Giants team that beat Cleveland 4-0. For his entire career, he had a 30.5 war as well. On September 30th, 1956 was his last Major League appearance. The same as Jackie Robinson. Hank Thompson was a part of the first... Um, Hank Thompson was a part of a lot of firsts when it comes to African-American history in the major leagues. Uh, he was the, when he faced Don Newcomb in April of 49, it was the first time that an African-American pitcher and an African-American batter had faced each other in the big leagues. When he played the outfield with Mays and Monty Irvin, uh, they became the first all-American, all-African-American outfield. He was the first African-American to appear in both the AL and NL. And in 1947, Hank and Willard Brown appeared in the lineup together for the 47 St. Louis Browns, making the first time since Moses Fleetwood Walker and his brother Weldy Walker in the 19th century to have two African-Americans in the same lineup. 1947, him and Larry Doby became the first African-Americans to play opposite of each other and in 1950 he um he he had the he set the most he set the record for most double plays by a third baseman which has since broken so hank thompson a very not very well known but did have a a big impact just like um the earlier um players to have 
to be a part of Major League Baseball. So next up, we have Buck O'Neill. Buck O'Neill, a pioneer and ultimate storyteller of the Negro Baseball League. John Buck O'Neill Jr., born 1911 in segregated Florida, where he wasn't able to go to high school while living in Sarasota, Florida. So he went and worked at the celery fields um, and then moved to Jacksonville, where he finished high school and took study two years of college at Edward Watery College. Uh, he would start off barnstorming in 34, playing in semi-pro and intramural game, or interracial games. 37, he signed with the Memphis Red Sox in the Negro American League. He played one year before having his contract purchased by Kansas City Monarchs. 1938, he started his career with Kansas City, playing from 38 to 43. He made two All-Star games. He led the Negro League Baseball League in uh, 38 in walks. 40, he led the league in doubles and RBIs. And in 44, he joined the Navy for World War II. From 44 to 45, he served in the Navy, working in the construction battalion. After World War II, he played in the Cuban Winter League. And this is where stats become conflicted. Um, in 46, he is noted by some historians with a 353 batting average, while BaseballReference.com says uh, he only batted 285 in 47. Uh, 350 in 1940 or um, in 46. In 1947, uh, it's stated that he, he batted 350, while BaseballReference.com states that he only batted 286. Then after the 51, uh, then after 1951, they don't even count his stats from, um, for, uh, for some games on baseballreference.com. Uh, his stats only go till, just till 48. Uh, baseballreference.com shows O'Neill to have a career average of 267 or 260. Um, 12 dingers and 342 hits. So, and that included his time in Memphis. O'Neill would be a player manager of the Kansas City Monarchs from 48 to 55 when he would also, when he would all, when he would soon retire in 55. After retirement, he became a scout for the Cubs where he scouted Lou Brock and got him to sign to the Cubs only to see him traded in the most lopsided trades of Cubs history to the rival Cardinals. Cards got a slumping, a slumping Brock, Jack Spring, and Paul to- Toth. Meanwhile, the Cubs got Ernie Bergoglio, Doug Clemens, and Bobby Shantz. Um, Bergoglio ended up being out of, uh, ended up not replicating his previous season. Uh, Doug Clemens ended up being out of baseball shortly, and so did Bobby Shantz. Uh, Buck also got Elston Howard into the majors with the Yankees as he was a very pro Elson Howard advocate since he had played with him. In 1962, as part of the College of Coaches, O'Neill was moved, was named as a coach for the Cubs, becoming the first African-American coach. Um, but he was never able to actually coach a game or be on the baselines. And he was also excluded from being a manager at any time of the College of Coaches. Um, the College of Coaches was where the, just a quick recap, I've done a whole uh, podcast on it. Is College of Coaches is where the Cubs had a, the brainiac idea of well, let's rotate coaches throughout the majors and the minor leagues every two to three weeks 
because that would uh, give more continuity instead of actually just going to find a manager. Oh. After 65, he continued to be a scout for the Cubs until 88 when he moved um, when he moved to the Kansas City Royals and became the Midwest Scout of the Year. But um, O'Neill gained more stature in 1994 when he was, appeared on the Ken Burns PBS documentary of baseball. That's when he, he really, really took off. So, but in 1990, he started to leave lead efforts to establish the Negro League Baseball Museum in Kansas City, Missouri, and he served as its honorary board chairman until his death in 2006. O'Neill received numerous honorary awards and um, awards after life. Um, and the list includes in 96, he was in a, given an honorary doctorate of business administration for the University of Missouri, Kansas City. 2002, he was inducted to the Baseball Scouts Hall of Fame in St. Louis, Missouri. In 2006, he was the oldest player to bat in a professional game, uh, walking twice intentionally in consecutive half innings as he was traded between the Kansas City T-Bones and the uh, Fargo-Moorhead Redbirds. He also was given the Presidential Medal of Freedom Award um, in 2006 as well. In 2007, there was an honorary seat at Kauffman. He was given an honorary seat at Kauffman Stadium. In 2007, the Beacon of Life Award was named after him. In 2000, and also in 2007, Buck O'Neill Lifetime Achievement Award named after him by the Hall of Fame as well. In 2008, there was a lifetime stat. There's a lifetime statue of him um, in Kansas City. In 2021, voted into the Baseball Hall of Fame finally. And then um, in 2022, he was finally inducted as a pioneer and executive of the Negro League Baseball. And Buck O'Neill is probably one of the best storytellers of Negro League Baseball. Now we come to Rube Foster, the man that created the Negro National League. The man with probably the greatest impact on Negro League Baseball. Um, he was born in 1879. He grew up in the excuse me, sorry, I had to sneeze for a second. Uh, he uh, he grew up in the Methodist Church as his dad was a preacher and a former slave turned sharecropper. He would carry his he would carry that religion with he'd carry his religion with him all through life. And in 1897, the Supreme Court after the Supreme Court upheld the separate but equal policies of the time that led to Jim Crow laws, Foster started playing baseball in Texas, first with the Austin Reds of, of Tilston College. This team happened to be affiliated with the church where, his dad, where Foster's dad was an elder. 1898, he joined the Waco Yellow Jacks, where stories began to circulate about Foster. One of the tales... Uh, he pitched 11 straight days, pitching every day a scoreless game. After playing in Texas, Rube, um, he would uh, bounce around and play in the South. Bounce around the South playing. In 1902, Frank Leland of the Chicago Union found Foster in Hot Springs, Arkansas, where he worked in a 
in a restaurant and pitched uh, to Connie, Connie Max catchers in his spare time. Uh, Foster joined the union but didn't play well, so he decided to go play semi-pro ball in Michigan. After that season ended, he went to play for Cuba for the Cuban ex-Giants, a um, team on the on the east, a premier team on the East Coast. Uh, he played one season, winning a title, and then uh, hopping over to the Philadelphia Giants for more money. Um, he played there from 04 to 06, winning three more city titles. It seemed during this time that he became more wide-known in baseball circles. He also earned the nickname Rube during this time as well. And some people just discredit how, but legend has it, is he beat Rube Waddle. And so he became, so Foster became the, um, in parentheses, colored Rube. Uh, during this time, a legend is also Rube Foster showed Chrissy Matthewson how to throw this, how to pitch the screwball um, that the managers, the manager of the John, of the Giants, John McGraw, came to Rube Foster and asked him to show Matthewson how to throw uh, the fadeaway pitch, as they used to call it back then, and when it was actually a screwball. Um, again, some doubt this, but there is one thing for sure: they did agree upon. If Rube Foster had been white at the time, he would have been the greatest pitcher to play in the American League or National League. He had a repertoire that included a curveball, screwball, and a fastball um, that fluttered away from the hitter. At one point in 1905, Rube is stated to win 51 out of 55 games, but not all records can be found. But what can be found is that he was 25 and 3. 1906, after winning. Uh, third straight city championship with Philadelphia. He would um, he would write an essay for um, Soul White's history of colored baseball and talked about how and ha- talked how to pitch and uh, he gave the three principles: good control, pitcher pitch certain pitches and where to pitch and where to pitch them, and the more game experience the um the more games you play the more experience you should have so you should basically keep learning from uh from your mistakes and continue to learn throughout the game in 1907 foster and and his teammates from philly would sign contracts for more money to play for the leland giants in chicago he played and managed where they went 110 and 10 his first year, and the team would beat a major league All Star team as well. Foster won two of three games in the series from 1908 to 1910. Foster played and managed, and he would pitch, play first, and outfield. His teams would win 190 um, would win in 1907, tie with Philly in 1908 and 1909. Um, he broke his leg in July, but then came back in October of that year to face the Chicago Cubs in an exhibition series where he pitched in game two and gave up two runs, but the Cubs, uh, and he pitched in eight innings that game as well, giving up two runs, but the Cubs came back in the ninth to win 6-5. 1910, Foster wrestled legal control away from Franklin Le- Frank Leland and took over ownership of the team. 
1910, uh, he barnstormed throughout the country and put together the best team ever, and they would go 123-6. and six. Foster would go 13-2 and two as a pitcher. In 1911, he sold 50% ownership of the team to John uh, Sclarity, son-in-law to C- Charles Kaminsky. Uh, that way, Foster's team could play at Southside Park, which is now called Sclarity Park. And the reason why they wanted to play at Southside Park is because the White Sox had just moved to Kaminsky and they needed a regular field to play at. So Foster changed the team name from the uh, to the Chicago American Giants, and they would win four straight Western um, Black Baseball Championship, losing the national championship in 1913 to the Lincoln Giants. In 1915, the American Giants and the Indianapolis ABCs started a, started a rivalry that would last until 1917. 1917, Foster um, lost numerous players t- to the war, but continued to dominate as they went 82-11. and 11. In 1918, he became only uh, he, he only became a manager at that time and no longer played. Uh, during the time of 1913 and 1917, Foster had his teams playing all over the country. Um, some media in Chicago said his teams made the White Sox look like Bush Leagues. After the war, Foster and Scolarity expanded the seating, but due to um, civil unrest in Chicago, the team had to play most of its games on the road. After the 1919 season, Foster would say, this is the last time I try to interest colored club owners to get together and work uh, and begin working on on a working ba- on a working basis so on February 13th 1920 Foster organized a meeting with seven owners of black clubs to begin a league that resembled the white only major league teams included the Chicago American Giants the Detroit Stars the Cuban Stars the KC Monarchs the St. Louis Giants the Indianapolis ABCs the Chicago Giants, and the uh, Dayton Marcos. They agreed after the com- during the convention, they agreed to a league constitution, bylaws, and appointed Foster as president. And the league's motto was, we are the ship, all else is the sea. The genius is also that Foster understood that league, the league needed to, needed a competitive balance in order for the league to survive. So, even though he had the best team in the um, out of all seven, out of all all of the teams there, he relinquished some of his top players from his team. But that didn't stop the Chicago American Giants from winning three straight titles um, before KC finally won one for the first time in 1923. At this point, Foster was. Uh, starting to face criticism on how he ran the league, some with some saying he, he ran it like a dictatorship. But during this time, the league expanded teams and player salaries also rose. It was also um, it was also the um, the the league also was making money at the time too. So apparently, his his dictatorship in quotations. Um, was working well. So, in 1924, the league had their first World Series. 
It was between the Kansas City Monarchs and the Hill and Hilldale. Uh, Foster planned the entire thing, put him, um, and this put him in the category of of Johnson and Judge Landis at the time. But unfortunately, this would be Foster's high. Like this is the ultimate peak. Because in 1925, while in Indianapolis, he was found unconscious due to a gas leak in his in his hotel room. He survived, but mentally he became delusional and irritable. Um, and he also became hostile and um, not easy to work with. Um, so September 8th, 1926, he was declared mentally irresponsible and confined to an Illinois State Institute where he spent four years until his death in December of 1930. The impact of Foster being removed from the league in 1926 wasn't felt until 1931 when the league finally folded. Um, in 1981, Foster was finally inducted in the, in the Cooperstown Hall of Fame as a pioneer of the an executive um, for the Negro Leagues. He also had a stamp um, made of him by the U.S. Postal Service. He is inducted into the Chicagoland Sports Hall of Fame, and he was featured on a $5 gold half-eagle coin as well. In 1922, uh, or I don't know why I put So, yeah, to, and this $5 half-eagle coin uh, came in with the centennial of the Negro Leagues. Foster's dream of a thriving league for the African American came to finally fruition in nineteen in the mid nineteen thirties with the second coming of the league, and it would last until nineteen sixty. And then that's the eight legends currently announced for MLB the Show twenty three. I hope you enjoyed listening about the history of the men that were pioneers, players, and um definitely a huge impact to the game of baseball. Well, I will be doing, uh, like I said, I'll be doing one more part. It will come out next week, which will include players not, uh, not talked about here and the leagues and where they started. And to provide, like I said, we'll talk about the, um, provide, talk about how they made money back then as they had a barnstorm and play. As always, thanks for listening to one guy with a mic, dingers and dunks. And then please drop me a follow, you know, if you and ring that bell and download the episode. And I will catch you all next time. Hey there, sports history fan. This is Arnie Chapman, aka the football history dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. The Pigskin Tales podcast is all about the lesser-known pro football players. Yes, there are stories about the ones we know, like Brad Tarkenton and Harold Red Green. But, have you ever heard of Ernie Nevers? How about Dave Osborne or even Grady Alderman? These men created their own path to the NFL. How did they do it? 
listen to the Pigskin Tales podcast. Now streaming on your favorite music platform. Go to pigskintales.com. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.